Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, good morning everyone. To those I haven't seen this year yet, Happy New Year and welcome back. If you've uh, just recently come back from holiday. Um, yeah, um, this is going to be a, an interesting year I think. Uh, I've, uh, you know, if you, if you look worldwide, there's a lot going on in, in the world, a lot of um, interesting things, also a lot of crazy things. This is the election year for us as South Africa and for many other countries, and um, I think it's, it's, it's really going to be a significant year, and, uh, you know, I want to invite you, all of you, um, to, to just with us um, to really, yeah, bring this year before the Lord. Let, let's make this a year where, we, where we, we really pray and trust God that, um, that He'll intervene. I think there are um, a lot of important things that need to happen. Um, I, I think some bad things are going to happen, but I, th- I also know that God's going to use them uh, because that's what He does. He makes all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are the called according to his purpose. And, and let, let's trust him for that. But let's, let's really bring everything before the Lord in prayer. And let's really bring um, our loved ones before the Lord in prayer. Um, you know, like his aunt was saying, um, one of the main reasons why we have Ignite is not for just for us as Christians or just to introduce new members to what we believe and why we believe it, but, but as an opportunity f- to, to bring friends, family, colleagues people who don't know the Lord, um, to, to ignite so that they can get introduced to the Lord and so that they could have their questions answered. Um, what I found is that, I, I, I wanted to say most people, but you know, I even want to make it stated more strongly, everyone who doesn't accept Christianity, who rejects Christianity, rejects Christianity based on a misconception they have about Christianity. And it's so important for us to, to give people opportunities to ask questions and, and to, to deal with those misconceptions that are keeping them away from Jesus and from, from salvation. So I, I want to really encourage you to take this seriously. Write down a few names of people that you're going to pray for this year for salvation, that you're going to trust God for, trust Him for opportunities to connect with them, and then to invite them to um, either to Ignite or to your small group or to church or, or, or just trust God to, to have a, a significant spiritual conversation with him. Okay, um, so uh, we're, we're busy working through Paul's letter to, to the Colossians, and um, we're over halfway, don't worry, we're going to start with chapter 3 now, but um, the, first, the first two chapters are the longer chapters, so the, the, the chapter 3 and 4 are a bit shorter, so we're, we're already way past um, halfway. And last, last week we just spoke about um, gospel sanctification, how religion and rebellion has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Something that we all struggle with, the indulgence of the flesh. Um, but the implication is that Christianity, that true Christianity, that the gospel does have value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I just want to read our scripture from last week just as a, as a, as a connection um, and it says in, in Colossians 2 from verse 20, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, 
Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value. Not just of some value, of little value, but of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I just feel the Lord laying on my heart to start with a, with a little story that I've told before. You know, if you, if you just think about a, a little bird that hasn't learned to fly yet, it's sitting in the nest and it, it falls out of the nest. And, you know, it sort of lands sort of at the, at the tree trunk and all of a sudden it sees a fox come, you know, running towards it to, to grab it and devour it. Um, the little bird can't fly, so it, it, can, it can run into like a hole, you know, uh, you know, amongst the roots of the tree and sort of hide there and where the fox can't get it. And that's, that's all good and fine. But if that little bird stays there in the hole and never learns to fly, eventually the fox is going to get it because <laughs> it's going to have to come out to get some food and water and that kind of stuff. And, and if it can only run on, on the ground, the fox is going to get it. You see, and, and so often, you know, that it's not wrong to use rules and regulations and self-control to to, um, to stop ourselves from, from sinning, from, from, allow, uh, from uh, being devoured by the evil one. But if that's all you do for, the, for your whole life, then you're like a bird that's running on the ground. We need to learn to fight the indulgence of the flesh, not just through self-control and rules and regulations, but through the gospel. Because that's, the gospel is what gives us wings to fly, to fly above the temptations and the threats and the power of, of the world and the devil and the, and the flesh. Um, so the verses that we're going to look at today, um, Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4, um, in these verses Paul tells us how uh, belief in Christ and the gospel has value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So let me just um, read that. It says in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Okay? Um, so Paul talks about quite a few stuff here. He says, if, then... If this is true about you, then do this. And, and I want you to notice that, that Paul talks about three kinds of things. He, he sort of mixes them up and, you know, puts them together um, in different ways. But he, he talks about things that have already happened, things that have already been done, that are already true of us. Okay? Then he talks about things that, um, that we must do, so things that, that have been done, things that must be done in the present and things that will be done in the future, okay? Things that have been done in the past, things that must be do done in the present and things that will be done in the future. So three kinds of things that he, that he talks about. Um, I just want to introduce you to a few theological terms. Theologians talk uh, um, about the indicative and the imperative. Now, indicative is just statements of truth, Imperative is commands and instructions. And 
the stuff that have been done, those are the indicative. Okay? The stuff that must be done are the imperative. And the stuff that will be done are the promises. And all three of them are present in this. So, um, if you can just go back to the scripture. I just want you to turn to the person next to you and, and, and tell them, do you, you know, what you see about, you know, what is past, what is present, what is future. Do you see the indicatives, the truths that we must believe? Do you see the imperatives, the commands we must obey? And do you see the promise that we must hope in? Okay, just, just turn to the person next to you and just in a minute or two quickly discuss that. You know, um, I was thinking this morning as we were worshiping and preparing, preparing for the worship, I was thinking, um, you know, what a, what a privilege it is for God to, to have God speak to us. And, and you know, I, I don't want us to miss the fact that when we read Scripture together, it's God speaking to us. Now, now when you know how excited you are when, when, when you bump into someone that you really like, and when you can have like a quick conversation with them, and, and, and you're excited about it, and, and you want to tell them all kinds of stuff, and you want to listen to them and hear what they have to say. Well, if that is true for, for a human, how much more true is it for God? And, and, and we, we should be excited that God wants to speak to us. And, and, and recognize the fact that God is excited to speak to us. There are things that He wants to tell us, and He wants to tell it to us because He wants to bless us, because He loves us. I mean, those of you who are parents will know that when you, when you interact with your children, when you speak to your children, you want to bless them. You want to tell them what they need to hear, what's, what's best for them, even if it's not always what they want to hear but 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 your heart is always to bless them and to to help them to instruct them to to correct them if necessary and to encourage them and that's what god wants to do with us so i i just want to encourage you to to just have a an excitement in your heart to hear from the lord this morning because because what god has to say to us is is powerful and important and i, I want to just start off by by reading a a, a little portion of um a commentary by a guy called Dick Lucas. He was a was an old British commentary writer, and he talks about how Paul writes about belief and behavior, about what is true and what to do, and how he connects these two. And he says it's so beautiful. He says, from now on, in in, in the letter of Colossians until Colossians four verse six. Actually, I think, yeah, I think I have it up there. Uh, the tone of Paul's letter is one of sustained exhortation. It is characteristic of the apostle's method of teaching to arrange his material in this way and to follow an, exp uh, an exposition of Christ and the gospel with an explanation of what it means to live in the world consistent with such truth. He refuses to teach the doctrines of the faith without insisting that they be translated into corresponding behavior and conduct. So he, first he talks about belief, and now in the letter he's going to start talking more about behavior. Okay? Nor does the apostle call his hearers to a new life, a new way of life, until they have understood what it means to be new persons in Christ. Paul is no mere moralist. In other words, he, he doesn't want to just do behavior modification. You know, change on the outside, cosmetic change on the outside, but not change on the inside in your heart. He, he wants change from the inside out, from starting from belief on the inside and then moving to behavior on the outside. 
He's no, Paul is no mere moralist. For, for him, there cannot be substantial goodness without godliness. If he is right here, it must follow that those standards of behavior and that quality of life that we have been accustomed to describe as Christian cannot in the end survive a serious erosion of Christian standards of belief. What is um, satisfying about the second half of this Colossian letter is that so complete a picture of practical Christianity is given in so short a space. Here is a well-balanced description of the normal Christian life. In an ordered sequence, Paul sets out five concentrated blocks of teaching to demonstrate how the rule of Christ will shape our various relationships. Such sections of teaching material must have uh, must from the earliest times have been in use for, instruct- for instructing young believers. But Paul is not simply taking prefabricated blocks and erecting them without shaping them to his purposes. There is nothing casual here. We shall quickly see how close the pointed um, and pointed are the connections between the first and second half halves of the letter. For Paul, the teacher knows well how to apply truth to life. And then he mentions the five blocks um, of teaching that will follow. So he says first uh, in, in Colossians 3 verse 1 to 8, the Christian and Christ. Uh, in Colossians 3 verse 9 to 17, the Christian and the local church. In uh, chapter 3 verse 18 to 21, the Christian and his family. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 22 to 4, verse 1, the Christian and his daily work. And in chapter 4, verse 2 to 6, the Christian and the outsider. So, you know, in the the weeks and months to come, we'll, you know, go through um, these sections. And this morning, we're just going to look at chapter 3, verse 1 to to 4. And like I said, Paul mentions some stuff in the past that have been done some stuff in the present that must be done, and some stuff in the future that will be done. So we're just going to quickly look at that. So first, Paul mentions three things that have been done to Christians. He says, did you you notice them? You have died, you have been raised, and you have life. And these are things that are already true of us. Now, we read... um, it says that if you have been raised with Christ. And, and you know, when we say if in, in English, it, it, it carries the connotation of, of uncertainty. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But, but in the Greek, you can state, um, state the if statement in, in two different ways. You can state it as if what you're saying, the, the premise is in question, it's uncertain. Or you can state it as if the premise is certain. And, and here, it, the premise is certain. And you, you can see in the context that, that it is certain, because he's not saying if, you know, maybe this, you, you have been raised with Christ. Because he says, if you died in, in chapter 2, verse 20, and then if you've been raised with Christ in chapter 3, verse 1. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, so, so the assumption is, obviously, that that is true of us. And and you'll see the NIV, this is from the ESV that that I'm reading, but the NIV translates it, since you have been raised with Christ. And and that's a good translation. That's a a quite a good translation. But but here's here's the challenge. Um, Colossians 3 verse 3 almost seems to, like a contradiction. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. So, so how, if you have died, can you still have life? 
And, and the answer is, of course, that it's in Christ. That we didn't die physically in Christ, but we died spiritually in Christ. And when Christ died, there's this, in a sense, we died with him on the cross. In other words, you know, um, Christ didn't just take your sin to the cross. He took you to the cross. Not just your sin that was nailed to the cross. You were nailed to the cross in Christ. If you believe in Christ and if through covenant you are, oops, if through covenant you are one with Christ, um, then you died with Christ. But if you died with Christ, Christ didn't just die and stay dead. He rose from the dead. He was resurrected. So that means that with Christ we have also been raised and we have life in Christ. And um, this life must be experienced through faith. So in, in Colossians 2 verse, verse 11 to, to 13, if you can just bring that up, Colossians 2 um, verse 11 to 13. Have you got that one, Ivan? Um, verse 11 to 13. Colossians 2, isn't that? Oh, it's not there. Oh, my goodness. I somehow, um, I thought I'd put it in my slides. But let me just, let me just read that to you then. Um, okay, Colossians 2. Verse 11. In him, that's in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Can you, can you see that it's through faith in Christ that we are united with Christ and that we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. So Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and new life, resurrection life, has become ours by faith. And later on, so you have to ask yourself the question, because in, in scriptures like all over the, the, the New Testament and in the letters of Paul, he says, we have died but we're alive. Let me give you one example that is well known. Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it, once again, it almost seems like a, tra- a contradiction. He says, I no longer live, but the life which I do live, I live by faith. So, so who, who is it who died, who doesn't live? It's me. But who is it that's been resurrected and that is alive? Also me. So, but that's confusing. <laughs> which part of me died and which part is alive? And as we go on in the chapter, you'll see Paul talks about your old self has died. Therefore, put off the old self. And your new self is now alive. And therefore, put on the new self and walk in the, in the new self. I wish I had more time to go into that. Um, but but what, did we, what did we die to? We spoke about that last week. We died to the devil, to the world, to the flesh and, and, and the sin that it wants, and to the law, the regulations. We died to all of those things, and we're now alive in the Spirit uh, to Christ. Um, 
And we have been raised with Christ. And, and, and he says through baptism, and, and like we said last time when we looked at that, it's through spirit baptism that we have been resurrected in Christ. Just like the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit raised us from the dead. That's what being born of the Spirit or being baptized in the Spirit um, refers to. Now, here's the thing I want you to think about. When Lazarus died, he was resurrected, right? So, is he in the same position as what Jesus was? Because Jesus also died and was resurrected. So, was Lazarus in the same situation that, that Jesus was? What, what was? What's different? Jesus' resurrection? Yes, that's... That's one, that's, that's one difference, yes. What else? Yeah, you? Lazarus dies again. Very good. Even though Lazarus was resurrected, he would die again. But Jesus was resurrected never to die again. So the quality of the resurrection was different. Lazarus' resurrection was a resurrection to physical life. To, a norm, to his old physical body. But Jesus' resurrection was a resurrection to eternal life, to a glorified body that could now walk through walls and stuff. Okay? So, so, so here's the thing. Lazarus went through death, but he had to go through death again. But Jesus went through death in such a way that he never has to go through death again. And if the life that we have is Jesus' resurrection life, then it means that it's a life that has already passed through death and is no longer subject to death. If that is the life that you have, that is hidden in Christ, with Christ in God, then it's a life that can never be, ta be taken away again. It's a life that can never end. It's a, it, you've been spiritually resurrected to eternal life, not just to earthly life. Isn't that amazing? That means you don't have to be afraid to die again. You don't have to be afraid for those your loved ones who are in Christ to die. Because even though they die, yet will they live. Because they're in Christ and they have Christ's life, which is no longer subject to death. Resurrection life. A life that cannot be taken away. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the point. If you are in Christ, these things are already true about you. You have died. You have been raised. You do have resurrection life. And you have these by faith in Christ. It's already true about you. But the extent to which you believe they are true about you will determine the extent to which these beliefs determine your behavior. Okay? The more you believe that what is already true about you, the more you'll be able to live it out, the more consistently you'll be able to live it out. Because no one can consistently live in a way that is inconsistent with how they see themselves, with what they believe about themselves. And the challenge for us as Christians is to believe about ourselves what God says about us. Christianity is nothing more or less than a process of becoming who you already are in Christ. That is what Christianity is. And, and, and therefore, it's important that we accept by faith these things.
things that have been done to us in Christ. We must accept what is true before we can move over to what, what to do. If you just try and do the right things without believing the right things about yourself, you're going to struggle. You're not going to be able to uh, maintain it. So in the past, what, what has been done, what is true, now in the present, what must be done, okay? Based on what is true, here's what we must do, Paul says. Um, now, he says two things. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above, right? Those are the two commands, the two imperatives, the two instructions that he gives. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above. And he's not saying that to the extent that you seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above, you have died with Christ and been resurrected with Christ. He's not saying that. He's not saying that if you do, then it is true. In other words, he's not saying that what you do causes these things to be true about you. They don't cause them to be true. They confirm that they are true. It's not, a, what we do is not the cause of our salvation, but it's the confirmation of our salvation. Okay, that's very important to, um, to understand. Now, here's the thing. Um, we as Christians tend to make two kinds of mistakes when we move from the indicative to the imperative, to, from what is true to what, it, what to do. Mistake number one is we, we think that, like I said, the, the imperative causes the indicative. Because I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And, and that is not at all what Paul is saying here. He's saying the opposite. He's saying because I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Because I'm already in Christ, I'm already, I've already died and been resurrected in Christ, and I'm already loved by Christ, you know, the, the one who loved me and gave himself for me, therefore, I no longer live my life in the flesh, but I allow Christ to live through me, and I now obey, okay? So the one mistake is, is to get the order wrong. The other mistake is to say that the imperative doesn't matter. Because these things are already true about me, I don't have to obey. But th th that is clearly also not what Paul says, because Paul gives all kinds of instructions. He's saying, because this is true about you, because you are loved by Christ, because you are in Christ, because you have been resurrected by Christ, now do the following thing. Now live in line with what is already true about you. Live out that resurrection life that is inside of you. Okay? And he, and, and he says, seek the things that are above. You know, I was, I was reading this. I was, I was reading this passage and, and discussing it with Louis and the hidden, the mystery hidden, but now revealed. And in Christ is hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom, right? Now, he's saying that um, true Christianity includes seeking what is hidden and discovering what is not obvious. Now, but, but, but you have sort of a question. If if it was hidden and it's now revealed, in what way is it revealed? If it's like a treasure, because that's, that's the word that Paul uses. You know, think of pirates who've buried a treasure. Is it now that the treasure has been revealed and put on display and you can just go and stick your hand in the tre tre treasure chest and take from it? Is, it? is it revealed in that way? Or is it revealed in the sense that 
now God has given his saints the map to where the treasure is. I think it's the second way. Because he's saying that our life is hidden in Christ. And when Christ appears, so, so the reality is now we don't see Christ. He's not obvious. He's not seen. So, so between now and when Christ returns, it's by faith. We, we, we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't see with our human eyes, but we see through faith. And we have access through faith to what has been revealed to us. So true Christianity includes, and, and, and uh, this is very important. On the one hand, God has already given us everything in Christ. But on the other hand, we must appropriate it through faith. We must see through the eyes of faith and we must grab hold of it with the hands of faith. Otherwise, it'll just be ours in theory and not in practice. The old saying, soap has been around for thousands of years and yet there are still dirty people in the world. Just giving someone a bar of soap doesn't make them automatically clean. They have to apply it. And that's what we have to do by faith. We have to apply it. And, and that's what he's, what, what he's saying. Seek the things that are above. Now, whatever you love, you automatically seek. Whatever you love most, you seek. And whatever you love most, you think about most. Right? And if Christ is the one that we love, then we will seek him who is above. And we'll think, we'll set our minds on him who is, a, is above. And and. Is, and, and, and um, Paul says, he, um, seek the things that are above. Seek him who is above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Now, now think about that just for a moment. Once again, Paul is showing us the location of the treasure. What does it mean to be at someone's right hand? The place of, of authority, the place of favor, the, 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 the best place. In other words, when it says that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, it means Christ is at the best place. He has the Father's favor. And if we want the Father's favor, then the place to find it is in Christ, who is in the place of favor. Do you want God, God's favor? Do you want God's blessing? Do you want God to love you? Find it at the right hand of the Father in Christ. That is where it's found. That's, and that's what he's saying, seeking it. And, and here's the thing. We all seek someone's favor. And the question is, whose favor are you seeking most? The favor of people of the world? The favor of your boss? The favor of your spouse? The favor of your friends? Or are you primarily, it's not wrong to seek other people's favor, but are you primarily and first and foremost seeking the favor of God? Remember we sang first things first? Seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, his favor first. Um, and, and the place to find it is at, is at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, set your minds on things that are above. And then he says, not on things that are on the earth. Note the, the, both the positive instruction and the negative instruction. What does, what does that mean? Now, <laughs> we've, we've all heard the saying... He's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that saying? As, as, have people who are not Christians said that to you? You're so heavenly minded, you have no earthly good. Now, um, 
Paul, when he says, seek what is above and set your mind on what is above, he's not suggesting a kind of heavenly absent-mindedness. Okay? Let me, let me just read you another quote by, by, by Dick Lucas. He says, does this mean, when he says, you know, seek the things that, or set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. Does this mean that things temporal are, um, sorry, temporal are to have none of our attention? In view of what follows, this is an impossible interpretation. Uh, taken like this, Paul would be advising them to have nothing to do with this life at all. He would be teaching that the activities of human life can never occupy the sustained and serious attention of the Christian. But is such a heavenly absent-mindedness really what the apostle orders? If so, it would be out of the question for the spiritual person to devote himself to practical affairs. He, would, he could take no part in the activities, uh, activities where concentration on the matter at hand are essential. A Christian would never be able to uh, be a mechanic or a surgeon or a businessman, or a chef, or even a good husband, or wife, or employer, etc., as Paul expounds later. And later on, he clearly tells us to be those things. So he's not telling us that you may pay no attention to, to things on earth. When he says, set your minds on things above, he, he's saying that must be our first priority. As for teaching and nursing, or minding the baby, such a lack of attention would get uh, what it deserves, no, read superficially in this way, verse 2 would be a recipe for pseudo-spirituality of a kind that harms the cause of Christ. So, what is Paul talking about when he talks about things on earth? In Philippians 3, verse 19, he uses the same phrase, and he says, uh, talks about people who don't make Christ and their first priority, and he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. So he's saying, setting your mind on sinful things, the indulgence of the flesh. That's what he's talking about. Don't set your minds on that. Set your mind on things above. Um, so Paul first says what is true about us, and then he tells us what to do. Seek what is above, set your mind on what is above. In other words, when he gives that command, it means that there's a responsibility that rests on us. We cannot be passive. The Christian life is not a life of passivity. Oh, Christ has already done everything, therefore there's nothing left for me to do. No, it's Christ has already done everything that is necessary, therefore I must apply what he has done. There's a lot for me to do. But all of what I have to do is, it, it's all effort, but it's not earning. I don't have to earn everything, anything, but I have to put in effort to put into practice what Christ has earned for me. Does that make sense? Um, John Piper says, our obedience to the imperative doesn't cause the indicative, it only confirms it. So, so here's, here's what I, asked, I started with a question. So if... Religion and rebellion has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The implication is the gospel and Christianity do, but how do they? Seek what is above, set your mind on what is above, and then walk in line with what is above. Yeah, so here Paul gives us a practical process of how you can use the gospel to sanctify yourself. 
to squash the indulgence of the flesh. You'll never be able to live the gospel unless you seek what is above, set your mind on what is above, and then walk in line with what is above. So we talk about live the gospel, love the people, obey the Spirit. But the only way to do that is through your mind. Seeking is about your desires. What do you want? What do you desire? Setting your desires above on Christ. Setting your mind, your thoughts above on Christ. What are the things you meditate on? What are things that occupy? Here's a question. What do you tend to think about when you don't have to think about anything? Where does your mind drift to naturally when you have nothing else to think about? And what Paul is saying that we must train our minds to drift to Christ, to the things above, not to things on the earth, not to the indulgence of the flesh. Does that make sense? And then he, he talks about the future, and I'm, I'm going to try and keep this short because I'm, I'm out of time. He, he says, after giving the indicative what is true and the imperative what to do, Paul gives us a promise, you know, what to hope. We will appear with him in glory. So, so the process is that by faith we accept what, what, what has been done, in love, we must walk in line with what, what, uh, you know, what, what we must do, and then we must hope in what will be done for us. In other words, um, here's the thing. There's nothing as discouraging as guaranteed failure. And there's nothing as encouraging as guaranteed success. If, if when you start something, you know you will be successful in the end. Doesn't that encourage you? And that's what this promise is. It's when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. And the glory is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The glory is will reflect his image. In other words, he's saying you will be successful. Not only can you believe what is true already about you in Christ, you can hope that that will be completed and established as you continue to seek what is above and set your mind on what is above. Ultimately, your success in Christ is guaranteed. That is the promise. Do you sometimes become discouraged in living the Christian life, in setting your mind on, on, on things above, on seeking things that are above? Do you ever get discouraged if you do get discouraged, I want to submit to you, it's because you forget the promise that your success is guaranteed in Christ. You will. When he appears, you will. Not you might or you may, but you will. We will appear with him in glory. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be made with him. Our salvation will be completed. Isn't it encouraging to know that as we seek what is above and we set our minds on what is above and we walk in line with the truth of the gospel that we are embarking on a process of which the outcome is guaranteed. You will succeed in the Christian life. That is God's promise to you. Isn't that amazing? So, um, let me actually... Um, stop there with that 
with that promise. Because I think that's, that's the most encouraging thing that I can leave with you. Meditate on the fact that God will complete the good work he started in you. He'll use your actions. He won't do it apart from your obedience, but he'll do it through your obedience. And if you are discouraged, maybe the problem is that you're just not meditating on God's promises enough. And you're not taking them by faith and hoping in them. And that is what's discouraging your heart. Maybe you just need to take time to meditate on them. You know, um, often in, in the Bible, Jesus calls his followers sheep. Which is a, a very generous and well-intentioned insult. Because <laughs> sheep are very, un, let, let's put it mildly, sheep are not the most intelligent animals. Okay. But one thing that sheep do is they chew the cud. Alaharko, we say in Afrikaans. They, they re-chew their food. They, they chew the cud. And, and that is what we, we must do. If you want to digest and take in the nutrition of the Word of God, you've got to chew the cud. You've got, you've got to re-chew it. You've got to meditate on it. Okay? Meditate on God's promises. The nourishment of God's promises will not flow into your spiritual life unless you meditate on it. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to imagine that moment. You know, even in the light of all your struggles now to obey God and to walk the Christian life. And I know all of you struggle because I know I struggle. It's, it's not... Christianity is not easy. Okay? But I want you to imagine when Christ returns and all of a sudden, in the twinkling of an eye, you change to become like Him. And every evil desire is stripped from your heart. And every difficulty and every temptation no longer has a hold on you. And all of a sudden, it becomes easy to do the things that you want to do. All of a sudden, it becomes easy to obey God. Just imagine how you would feel. Just imagine the weight that would be lifted, the, the yoke that would be lifted from your shoulders. Just imagine how you'd look. I mean, for someone like me who's on the wrong side of 40, you know, who has a unique physique and struggles to stay, stay in shape, you know, I look forward to having a glorified body because <laughs> it's going to be in good shape. <laughs> No more sickness, no more scratchiness in your throat, or no more pains and aches, no more fear. Our salvation having been completed, that is what God promises for us. When Christ appears, we will appear with him, but not just appear with him, we'll also appear in his glory, we'll share in his glory. That's what lies ahead of you. That's guaranteed. That's God's promise. He will complete the good work He has started in you, even to the coming of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Amen. Let's stand. So what I want to suggest to you or what I want to recommend to you is gospel mindedness heavenly mindedness in the sense that Paul describes it 
seeking what is above, setting our minds on what is above so we can live it out in the here and now until He comes and completes the good work He has started in us. And just remind yourself that what you're struggling with now, you're not going to struggle with forever. Izan was, was sharing that word about Naaman and how we get frustrated because we have to wash seven times in the Jordan. Why not just once? God, why have, do I have to battle, go through the same battles over and over again? Why do I have to do the same thing over and over again? And while I'm doing it, it doesn't seem to have any effect. Be encouraged. God will complete the good work He has started in you. He is giving you victory and He'll continue to give you victory until He has completed your victory. The things you are struggling with now, you will not struggle with forever. The things that burden you now will not burden you forever. The things that bind you now will not bind you forever. Continue to walk deeper and deeper into Christ's freedom, the freedom that He has for you. Amen. Father, we just want to thank You, Lord, for this good news that you have already laid the foundation that we can by faith build on it with a guarantee that the good work that you've started will be completed in us and Lord I just want to bless every single saint who is here this morning every single saint who hears my voice even those who are joining online. I just want to bless each one of them with encouragement in Jesus' name. Those who have trusted and hoped and have not yet received what they have trusted for and hoped for, I pray especially for them. I pray that encouragement be removed from their heart. Discouragement, sorry. Discouragement be removed from their hearts and be replaced with encouragement, with strengthening of their hearts and of their hands to continue to follow you and to trust in you and to hope in you. To seek what is above and to set their minds on what is above. Not to be distracted by the things of this world. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that right now you are working in our hearts. And we also pray, Lord, that the encouragement we receive from you by hoping in your promises that we'll be able to encourage one another with that. That we'll be able to encourage our children, our parents, our friends, our colleagues with the same good news in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.